Bridges to Bailey, back to Bridges, once more to Bailey, now it's Bridges, here's Bailey, oh my, Bridges, Bailey, Bailey, Bridges, and they scored! Last play of the game, 98 yards to go, and these boys ain't got no more hope than a pig in a parlor. Pitch goes to the right, defense closing in, and he's floating. He's in the air, a human being is taking flight, he's flying to the 50, the end zone, touchdown! The piggies have done it, I turned, I turned, I turned, the piggies win! Oh, sacré bleu, il est fort sans pied, il utilise ses mains, sans pied? Un honte, un disgrace! Oh, what's this? He's thrown it back! This could change the sport! A terrible day for fishing, a great day for the fish! This is Apocalypse Sports Radio, and now your host, Shane Ryan! Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode number 20 of Apocalypse Sports Radio. Today, we are introducing a new format where on Tuesdays, we examine in-depth some interesting bit of sports lore. On Thursdays, we'll continue with the long-form interviews we've been doing from the start. So, today's subject is the Richard Riots, and I would like to invite you to come with me on a journey through space and time to Montreal, Quebec, the nation of Canada, and the year 1955. Okay, so as you've probably guessed, this story culminates in a massive hockey riot. But first, we need a bit of background. Unlike the other provinces of Canada, Quebec is home to a majority French-speaking population. In 2011, 78% of Quebec residents, or almost 6 million people, spoke French as their mother tongue, compared to just 8% whose mother tongue was English. In addition, the French-speaking population of Quebec is largely Catholic, while the English speakers tend to belong to Protestant sects. Now, let's not get it confused. Quebec is not Northern Ireland, but there is and has been a deep cultural and economic divide, and yes, it has occasionally sprung up into violence. And it goes back hundreds of years. Not long after the French ceded Canada to Great Britain, a 1791 constitutional act allowed, quote, Lower Canada, which is now Southern Quebec, to retain French civil law and institutions. But in reality, this was nothing like a homeland for French Canadians. And Anglo-Canadians, the English, continued to hold a majority of political and economic power. It could be argued that every bit of tension that has followed since started here with this piece of dissonance. It would take much longer than we have to cover the entire history of the dynamic between French and English ethnic groups in Quebec, but suffice it to say that by the 1950s, French Canadians felt like a definite underclass. More than 70% of provincial wealth was concentrated in the hands of the minority English, and under the rule of Premier Maurice Duplessis, a conservative, Quebec had entered a period that came to be known as the Grand Norseur. You're going to have to excuse my pronunciation of the French words throughout this podcast, uh, but the Grand Norseur meant the Great Darkness, and this was where anti-union, anti-worker policies were implemented, and Duplessis gave little to no funding for social services. That took a harsh toll on the working class, many of whom, again, were French. But things were changing in the 50s. French Canadians were becoming more educated, 
They were becoming more politically conscious, and they demanded equality. Starting in 1960, a liberal government was elected, and the so-called Quiet Revolution had begun. It wasn't always so quiet. A terrorist group called the Quebec Liberation Front came into existence. They were dedicated to Quebec separatism. They bombed the Montreal Stock Exchange in 1969, and in their most infamous act, they kidnapped and murdered a labor minister named Pierre Laporte in 1970, which actually turned the public against them for good, and after that, their influence waned. But most of the changes were nonviolent. By 1995, the economic situation had improved measurably, but the cultural differences were still so profound that a referendum for Quebec independence came agonizingly close to passing, failing by just 55,000 votes among the 4.57 million Quebecers who had voted. But that, of course, was all in the future from where our story is. So let's go back to the past. In fact, let's go back to the way past. At the end of the 19th century, when French Canada began to transition away from agriculture, it created an economic underclass, many of whom moved to the cities and occupied new slums in the province's largest city, Montreal. It was in one of these tough neighborhoods on the city's north end, Bordeaux, where Joseph-Henri Maurice Richard, later known as Rocket Richard, was born in 1921 as the oldest of eight children to Onassim and Alice. His childhood was marked by poverty, and his father, a carpenter, was unemployed for six years starting in 1930 when the Great Depression struck. Richard learned to skate young, but didn't play organized hockey until he was 14. By 1940, he had been promoted to a Canadian's farm club, but his style was considered stiff and awkward, and he was thought of as too brittle early in his career and nearly abandoned as a prospect when he broke his ankle and wrist. He was brought up to the Canadiens, the NHL club, in the 1942-43 season as a temporary replacement, but again, he broke his wrist after six games, and his status was lower than ever. But the next year, he fought his way back onto the team, and this time, he scored 32 goals. After that, things changed quickly, and within three years, he was the MVP of the NHL. So, taking a break from the political side of the situation, we have to talk about Richard's personality. He was described as moody and silent off the ice, but when he played, he was never far from a violent interruption. His nickname, Rocket, stemmed from his speed as he attacked the goal, but it could have been referring to the explosions of rage that were all too common for him. Jack Falla, one of the great hockey writers, wrote about seeing Richard play in Boston for the first time as a kid. Notwithstanding that he was merely loafing at the blue line, Falla wrote, there was, in the dark mane of Maurice Richard, a vague aura of coiled menace. Strangely enough, the American writer William Faulkner once wrote about the Rocket in a piece for Sports Illustrated. In Richard, he saw, quote, something of the passionate, glittering, fatal, alien quality of snakes. By the time he turned 33 in 1955, Richard held two distinct honors. He was the career leader in goals scored in the NHL, and he was also the most fined player in NHL history. The incidents leading to those fines are, to the modern ear, almost unbelievable. A $500 fine for choking a referee in a New York hotel lobby. $250 for bludgeoning Bill Ezenicki with a stick in the Stanley Cup Finals. $250 for slapping a linesman in the face. Add to that a variety of fines for penalties ranging from $25 to $100. And in all, Richard was fined more than $2,500, a lot more then. He knew he had a problem, but it seemed out of his control. He once told a writer, when I'm hit, I get mad and I don't know what I do. Before each game, I think about my temper and how I should control it. But as soon as I get on the ice, I forget all that. 
So there were clearly some temperamental issues at play. But there was also plenty of good reason for his rage. Throughout his career, Richard was targeted by opposing players who would literally brutalize him with dirty hit after dirty hit and toss out a litany of anti-French slurs while they were doing it. He felt, not without justification, that league referees failed to protect him and that because he was French-Canadian, there was a double standard. In particular, he loathed the NHL president, Clarence Campbell, an Anglophone who he perceived as the chief purveyor of injustice. A year earlier, Campbell had suspended Canadiens player Bernie Boom Boom Joffreon for eight games as a result of a stick-lashing fight between him and Ron Murphy of the New York Rangers. In the hearing, it was revealed that Murphy had started the fight by striking first, but Joffreon received the greater punishment, eight games to Murphy's five. Granted, Murphy's injuries had landed him in the hospital, but Richard detected prejudice yet again, and he wasn't afraid to speak his mind. In a newspaper column he had at the time, Richard wrote, What did Campbell do when Jean Bellevue was deliberately injured twice by players from Chicago and New York? No penalty, no fine, no suspension. Did he suspend Gordie Howe of Detroit when he almost knocked out Delaro St. Lorenz's eye two years ago? No. Richard called the decision against Joffreon a farce and wrote that the dictator should not try to create publicity at the expense of a good fellow like Boom Boom Joffreon just because he is a French-Canadian. That was the backdrop. These were the attentions that would explode into a political revolution within a decade. Montreal's French Canadians believed they were treated as second-class citizens, and they believed the same of Maurice Richard and their beloved Canadiens. In this hockey-mad city, they thought they were targeted unfairly and then punished for simply fighting back. And it would all come to a head on March 13, 1955. That night, the Canadians were playing at the old Boston Garden against their rivals, the Boston Bruins. At the time, there were only six teams in the entire NHL. The Canadians, the Bruins, the Detroit Red Wings, the Toronto Maple Leafs, the New York Rangers, and the Chicago Blackhawks. Two seasons before, the Canadians had defeated the, this Bruins team in the Stanley Cup Finals, winning in five games. But a year later, they had lost to the Detroit Red Wings and Gordie Howe in seven games. That series was just the second time in NHL history that a Finals Game 7 had been decided in overtime, and it hasn't happened since. The Red Wings had home ice in that series due to winning the regular season, and in a contest so tight, it might have made the difference. Now, the Canadiens were battling those same Red Wings again in the standings, and with just three games left in the regular season, the Canadiens actually held a two-point lead and were coming in on an 11-game unbeaten streak. So, this game against the Bruins was critical, to say the least. It started promisingly for the Canadians when Dickie Moore scored in the first period. Also in that period, in an ominous sign of what was to come, a Bruins defenseman named Hal Lyko charged Richard. What that means in hockey terms is basically that he checked him, but he went well out of his way to do so. That's a penalty, and it sparked early tension between the two players. The Bruins scored two goals in the second period to take a two-goal lead. With Montreal in a power play late in the third period, Lyko struck Richard in the back of the head with his stick. Now, according to him, this high stick was actually in retaliation. I checked the rocket on the play, he said later. He slapped me across the face with his stick. Sure, I let him have it good right over the head with my stick. 
Whether that was true or not, Lyko's blow was a nasty, violent one, and it opened a cut on Richard's head that would require five stitches to close. And the rocket was furious. When the whistle blew for a delayed penalty, Richard skated to Lyko, blood now streaming down his head, incensed. Lyko had already thrown his gloves to the ice, prepared for a fist fight, but that was not what Richard had in mind. Instead, he swung his stick over his head with two hands and slashed Lyko in the face and shoulders. The first blow opened a cut on Lyko's face, and he would need two stitches of his own. A melee ensued, and Richard was repeatedly held back by officials and repeatedly broke free. He grabbed a second stick and broke it over the back of Lyko. Finally, he was thrown to the ice and pinned to the ground by an official, linesman Cliff Thompson. Doug Harvey, Richard's teammate, then knocked Thompson off Richard's back, and when Richard rose, still consumed with anger, he saw one target in front of him, Thompson, the linesman. He punched him twice in the face, uh, and there are sources claiming he knocked him unconscious, but no contemporary reports seem to back that up. The AP version of the story that appeared in the Montreal Gazette only described a, quote, wicked right-hand punch that raised a large swelling, and another report in Detroit called it one of those tremendous right-hand wallops that inflicted a mouse under Thompson's eye. This, needless to say, was quite an act of violence. It was not totally unprecedented either. Richard had thrown his gloves at a linesman in late December of that year in a game against the Maple Leafs, or perhaps punched or slapped him, depending on which account you want to believe. But the scope of this assault was on a different level entirely. Frank Udvari, the referee, did the only thing he could. He assessed Richard a match penalty, which banned him from what remained of the game. It also came with an automatic $100 fine and, most importantly, a mandatory investigation by the league president, Richard's old nemesis, Clarence Campbell. After the game, angry Boston fans made their way outside the hallway leading to the Canadiens' dressing room and could be heard calling Richard a murderer and shouting for him to be locked up. In fact, they very nearly got their wish. Lieutenant Frank Gannon and Detective John Hommel of the Boston Police Department were on hand, and as far as they were concerned, Richard should be arrested for assault and battery by means of a dangerous weapon. Dick Irvin, the Montreal head coach, refused to let them in the locker room to see his star player. As you can imagine, the police didn't take kindly to this, and a shouting match ensued that threatened to boil over into something much worse. The intervention, strangely enough, came in the form of Bruins president Walter A. Brown and general manager Lynn Patrick. They convinced the police that the NHL would take action, and this placated them. Afterward, Lyko spoke with reporters. He made his claim that Richard had struck him with a stick first, prompting the original blow, and proceeded to describe the fight. Quote, then I just dropped my stick as he came after me, Lyko said, but he didn't want to fight. I yanked off my glasses, and instead of fighting, he grabbed his stick and swung at me. I put up my hand and blocked it, got it on the arm. Then he swung at me again. This time I turned away and got the stick on the back. I was plenty mad and went after him. I fell down and he hit me a good punch when I was down. Richard was far more tight-lipped. When reporters asked him for a quote, bravely it has to be said, all he would say was, ask Laco. Milt Schmidt, the Bruins coach, was enraged. Never saw anything as cowardly in my whole hockey career, he said. He apparently had no comment about Lyko's original high stick. Another anonymous Bruins player speculated about the potential penalty. If I swung and hit an official, he said, I would be suspended for life. In fact, the final act of the night involved the police yet again. This time, they escorted the Canadians out the back way and to the railroad station so they could catch their train home.
Three days later, on March 16th, the Canadians got two pieces of very bad news. First, Gordie Howe scored two goals to lead the Red Wings to a 5-4 victory over the Bruins, which tied them with Montreal for first place in the standings. Second, and much worse, league president Clarence Campbell held a hearing at his office in Montreal. It was attended by Richard, Lyko, the officials from that game, and a few others. Notably absent were the NHL's Board of Governors or any other team owners. One way or another, this would be a unilateral decision by Campbell. And it was personal, too. Not only had Richard insulted him in print a year earlier, as we talked about, but Campbell himself had worked as an NHL referee in the 1930s. In one game, when a Bruins player named Dick Clapper had committed a high-sticking penalty, Campbell was so incensed that he called him a profane name, and Clapper punched Campbell so hard that he was knocked to the ice. Sound familiar? So this hearing lasted between two and a half and three and a half hours, and it included testimony from most parties present. In his defense, Richard attempted to argue that he didn't know what he was doing due to the blow to his head, and thought that Thompson, the lineman, was a Bruins player. Later that night, back in Boston, Lyko gave his account. Frank Udvari's report, again, that was the referee, generally seemed to be like my own account of the affair. While I was there, Rocket didn't do much besides shake his head repeatedly. At one time, he did seem to be making something of the fact that Cliff Thompson pulled him down from behind. When the players were dismissed, Richard headed to a nearby hospital to have x-rays taken of the injuries he'd sustained in Boston. Lyko rushed back to Boston to play that night's game against the Red Wings. Campbell retired to his office, skipped lunch, and began to write, in longhand, what would turn out to be a 1,200-word decision. It was released at around 4.30 p.m. The time for probation or leniency is past, Campbell wrote. He dismissed Richard's argument, saying that even if he was hit on the head, it cannot account for his conduct in persisting in breaking away from the officials finding other sticks, and renewing the attack twice more. Nor did he buy the argument that Richard mistook Thompson for a Bruins player. He said that Richard, quote, had no difficulty locating Lyko when he was making the attacks. He concluded, whether this type of conduct is the product of temperamental instability or willful defiance of the authority in the game does not matter. It is a type of conduct which cannot be tolerated by any player, star or otherwise. In the result, Richard will be suspended from all games, both league and playoff, for the balance of the current season. Richard, up to that point, had been the NHL's points leader. It was an honor he'd never won before, and at that time, the scoring title, which meant goals plus assists, was considered more prestigious than leading the league in goals, which he had done four times and would do again that season. But in the points race, he led his teammate Bernie Jeffreon by two points, 74-72. to 72. Because of the suspension, Jeffreon would pass him, finishing with 75 points and cost Richard the $1,000 prize. And as it turned out, in his career, he would never win that scoring title. And this was also an enormous blow to the Canadians. They lost their last two games of the regular season to the Red Wings, fell out of first place, and gave up home ice for a potential Stanley Cup Finals rematch. As it happened, those two teams did meet in the finals, and the Canadians had to play for the title without Richard. The home team won every game. For the second straight year, the Red Wings defeated the Canadians four games to three. But the loss of a scoring title by Richard in a Stanley Cup for the Canadians ended up being minor consequences. The worst was yet to come. 
First, a little bit of the reaction from around the league. Canadians GM Frank Selka was defiant. He said, quote, if I made any statement at this time, it would probably be as hypocritical and hysterical as those of certain Boston, Toronto and other newspapermen who are largely responsible for the severity of the decision. The Canadians had the option to appeal, by the way, but in the end, they chose not to. Jack Kinsella, writing for the Ottawa Citizen, was one of the few columnists outside Montreal who disagreed with the decision. On Richard, he wrote that, quote, his record as a performer is probably the most colorful and effective in the history of the game. He was and still is a drawing card wherever the Canadians appeared. They couldn't draw flies in such places as New York, Boston, or Chicago, but schedule the Habs and the Rocket, and they jammed the joint. And over 13 years, Kinsella went on, the Rocket has been subjected to the most flagrant mauling, hooking, holding, and every other form of larceny imaginable. All because he was good, that could be found in the game of hockey. To most of this, Mr. Campbell, your officials, turned a bad eye and chose to view the situation with a certain amount of humor. Interestingly, Richard hadn't heard the verdict when it came out since he was still in the Western Hospital undergoing tests. Around 5 p.m., he came back to the Canadiens' offices where Dick Irvin, his coach, and a few others waited for him. Be prepared for a shock, Irvin told him. You are out for the season and out of the Stanley Cup games, too. You're joking, Richard said. It's impossible. Tell me the truth. When they confirmed the story, Richard looked stunned and actually fell back against the wall. He asked what had happened to Lyco. Nothing, Irvin said. Richard was so devastated that his mind went immediately to retirement. I'm sorry my career should end this way, he said. Throughout the rest of the NHL, though, Campbell had support. Jolly Jack Adams, the Red Wings GM, said of Richard, he got off too lightly. He should have been banned until January 1st. Con Smythe, Maple Leafs president and future namesake of the league's MVP award, told reporters that, quote, I am with the president 100% and will back him to the limit. Jim Skinner, Red Wings coach, agreed. They had to put a check on that fellow before he injured someone permanently. Ted Lindsay, the Red Wings captain, said he was lucky the suspension wasn't for life. And Walter Brown, Bruins president, said it was the least they could do. Fleming McKell, Boston center, maybe had the most comprehensive quote. He said if they'd thrown the book at Richard in 1947 when he cut Bill Ezenikian violin, it might have stopped him and he might have become an even greater hockey player because of it. To put it mildly, Canadiens fans disagreed. Within seconds of the decision being made public on the 16th, hundreds and then thousands of fans began to call Campbell at the league office. Some were just playing to vent, but for many, many others, it was more serious. It's too bad for him, said one caller of Campbell. When I find him, I'm going to kill him. A woman concurred. He will get killed. He daren't show his face at Thursday's game. Another man, told that Campbell wasn't in, vowed to blow up his office. And they flooded NHL headquarters with nasty comments. One man told the president's secretary, tell Campbell I'm an undertaker and he'll be needing me in a few days. In fact, the threats had started to come in even before the verdict. One caller a day earlier had promised that if Richard was suspended, Campbell, quote, will be dead by the end of the week. In a letter to Campbell, one person called out the ethnic prejudice seemingly tainting the NHL president's judgment. If Richard's name was Richardson, you would have given a different verdict, the writer said. 
It got so bad that the staff inside the league offices began taking only one out of every 25 calls. A Quebec radio station, CKCH, asked callers to sound off, and out of 400 calls, only two supported the decision. Of the remainder, there were, again, a healthy number of serious threats. As it happened, the Canadians were hosting the Detroit Red Wings the very next night on March 17th. A demonstration was planned, and many callers warned Campbell not to show up at the game. These calls and these threats were about hockey, sure, but they were about so much more. They were about the simmering tensions and resentments of the French-Canadian minority who, in their minds, were witnessing an old pattern play out. Yet again, the English minority was treating them as second-class citizens, holding them to a double standard and imposing their will unjustly. Their rage was political. In that climate, it seems like a no-brainer that Campbell would stay home for the next Canadians game. His presence alone would be antagonistic and lead to nothing good. What would be the point? But Clarence Campbell, as he'd shown in his solitary decision to ban Richard, had a defiant streak. A year earlier, when he suspended Boom Boom Joffreon, Campbell was also warned not to show up to the next Canadiens game, but he did anyway. 20 extra plainclothes cops were placed in the Montreal Forum that day, and Campbell was booed and some fans held banners reading things like, Down with Campbell, but an early Montreal goal settled the crowd and the game went off peacefully. So now, a year later, Campbell likely believed that it would set a bad precedent to hide. Plus, he was a tough man himself. He'd fought in World War II and afterward was one of the lawyers who prosecuted Nazi war criminals. It wasn't in his nature to back down. He had stood up to the angry Montreal crowd once, and he made the choice to attend the Detroit game on March 17th because he thought he could do it again. He was wrong. Fear walked the streets of Montreal last night. That was the headline written by Bob Joyce of the Canadian press to describe the disaster that befell Montreal on the night of the 17th. For a while, though, it didn't look like things would get too out of hand. That morning, callers continued to flood the lines of the NHL league office, and by the afternoon, protesters had begun to gather outside the Montreal Forum, many of them with placards, while police formed a line in front of the venue. Still, though they packed the forum lobby, and though the tension was building, they were peaceful. They held signs reading, Injustice to French Canada, Abbas Campbell, which meant down with Campbell, and Viva Richard. There was an effigy depicting Campbell as a pig, and they beat this figure with a hockey stick. As game time approached, though, the mostly young men protesting numbered in the thousands, perhaps as high as 10,000, and some began to throw stones and firecrackers from the crowd. Several times, a PA announcement said that the game was sold out, as if that would disperse the crowd. But it was the action inside the arena that finally lit the powder keg. Midway through the first period, Clarence Campbell entered the forum, and he wasn't alone. He actually had the audacity to bring his fiancée, his fiancée's sister, and another woman. The booze rained down, but those were the least of his problems. He was immediately hit with, quote, a shower of peanuts, programs, pennies, eggs, and tomatoes. To that, the AP report added oranges and overshoes, which the Canadians called rubbers. Some of the fans sitting nearby were also hit with debris and asked Campbell to leave for their own protection. Bottles smashed in the nearby vicinity, and within minutes, Campbell told the women with him to leave. There were at least 100 police officers on hand and 60 firefighters, but ironically, many of them were outside managing the disturbances among the protesters. 
Aside from a small cordon of ushers and a few police officers, Campbell was on his own. A Canadiens fan named Andre Robinson had smuggled in some ripe tomatoes, and he managed to get through the police line and smash a tomato on Campbell's chest. A younger man, pretending to be a friend of Campbell's, got through the police and extended his hand to Campbell. When the commissioner shook it, the man slapped him in the face twice and then attempted to punch him as Campbell kicked him away. Despite these ominous signs, Campbell stayed put. Elmer Ferguson, a writer for the Montreal Herald, later wrote, You may not agree with his judgment, but you can't but admire the superb courage of Clarence Campbell, a man who faced death throughout World War II, to whom the heckling and the minor missiles and the torrents of verbal abuse, ranging from stupid to obscene, hurled his way, bounced like thistledown off one who had faced shells and shrapnel. Okay. Meanwhile, the Canadiens were having one of their worst games of the year. By the end of the first period, they trailed the Red Wings 4-1. It didn't really matter, though. All through that period, players and coaches alike were worried about the crowd. And they were right to worry, because when the first period ended, the trouble inside the forum reached a fever pitch. Reportedly, a group of men from a nearby mechanic shop had brought, among other items, a U.S. Army model tear gas canister. Shortly after Campbell was slapped, they set it off not far from the president. The fumes rose, and finally, Campbell was forced to flee through a side exit. He wasn't alone. In the lower deck, the Canadian supporters raced for the exits in what a writer for the Montreal Gazette called a wild stampede, wrapping anything they could around their faces to protect their eyes. In truth, the tear gas canister might have saved Campbell. After he was slapped, the emboldened crowd began to close in on him, and the tear gas was the thing that managed to disperse them and let Campbell flee in the confusion. The police couldn't have done any better. The Montreal Fire Chief called the game off wisely. Detroit was given the 4-1 victory, and that gave them the lead in the standings. But things were about to go from bad to worse as the 14,000 fans left the forum and joined the protesters on the street. In every riot action, there is a moment when the crowd tips over the edge, and this was that moment. With the added numbers and the rage at what had occurred inside the forum, tempers spilled over and the riot began in earnest. St. Catherine Street, the main artery in Montreal, was flooded with angry fans, most of them young men, and they began to pelt the forum door and the police in front of it with frozen chunks of snow and ice, overshoes, fruit, and anything else they could get their hands on. Several people, bleeding from the head after being hit by these missiles, were loaded into police cars and taken to safety. The injuries mounted and the protesters began unhooking the street trolleys on the road, preventing them from passing for the next four hours. And in the meantime, they smashed the street trolley windows, forcing some of the passengers to lay flat in the ground. The forum windows came in for a smashing too. A car was overturned, a newsstand was set on fire, and the rioters went on the march, chanting, We want Richard. Up and down St. Catherine Street, they broke store windows, looted jewelry stores and cigar shops, and fought anyone they saw. At one point, some rioters grabbed a taxi driver and began to beat him. More newsstands were burned, and several cars were overturned. Traffic came to a halt as the crowd, which may have been as large as 20,000, milled around the streets. The rioting and looting lasted until 3 a.m., and between 65 and 70 were arrested before it was all through. Amazingly, nobody was killed. The vandalism spread for 20 city blocks, 
and the damage was estimated at somewhere around $100,000, which would be a million dollars today. In the aftermath, Montreal Mayor Jean Drapeau blamed Campbell, saying his presence had ignited the riots. In the face of the heavy fan protests in Montreal and the general unpopularity of his decision, Mr. Campbell should never have gone to the game, Drapeau said. Campbell, in response, called this, quote, a strange and sad commentary. Drapeau addressed the public ahead of the next game, but the man the public really needed to hear from, Maurice Richard, was hesitant, fearing that he might make things worse. Richard had actually been at the game, but in his street clothes, he mostly went unnoticed. Finally, on Friday night, he conceded and made statements in French and English over the radio. Because I always try so hard to win and had my own troubles in Boston, I was suspended, he said. At playoff time, it hurts not to be in the game with the boys. However, I want to do what is good for the people of Montreal and the team. So that no further harm will be done, I would like to ask everyone to get behind the team and to help the boys win from the Rangers and Detroit. I will take my punishment and come back next year to help the club and younger players to win the cup. And he was right. The Canadiens lost to the Red Wings that year, but starting the very next season, Richard and his team won five straight Stanley Cups. After the fifth, now almost 40 years old, and feeling that the game was too fast for him, Richard retired. He had won eight Stanley Cups, scored 544 career goals, at the time the most ever, and won one Hart Memorial Trophy as the league MVP. He went on to become a team ambassador, but perhaps not surprisingly, considering his personality, he had a falling out with the club and remained estranged until the 80s. He earned most of his money as a pitchman after that, endorsing all kinds of products, and, though at one point he was named the coach of the Quebec Nordiques, he lasted just two games before the strain got to him and he quit. He raised seven children in Montreal and passed away in 2000 from abdominal cancer. As for the legacy of the Richard riots, well, that depends on who you ask. Was it an isolated sports incident triggered by a series of strange events and set off by a few young hooligans? Or was it the mark of a societal transformation? Even at the time, columnists were suggesting that it was the latter. In an article published four days after the riot, journalist André Laurendeau called it a sign of growing nationalism in Quebec. His piece, titled On a tout mon frère Richard, which meant my brother Richard has been killed, Lauren Doe suggested the riot, quote, betrayed what lay behind the apparent indifference and long-held passiveness of French Canadians. It was a frustrated people protesting against their fate. He wrote that Campbell incarnated all of the real or imagined adversaries that our little people encounter. In 2014 at SB Nation, author John Rosengren wrote that novels, plays, folk songs, academic articles, and movies followed that cast Richard as an ethnic martyr of sorts, a Saint Sebastian riddled with all the arrows of prejudice that Anglos had slung the way of the Quebecois over the years, and the mob became the avenging embodiment of French-Canadian frustration striking out against the imperialists. Taken to the extreme, that line of thinking credits the Richard riot, and as, as it has become known, for initiating Quebec's La Révolution Tranquille, the Quiet Revolution, that period in the 60s of liberation for French-Canadians. Two nights after the riots, on Saturday, March 19th, the Canadians hosted the New York Rangers at the Montreal Forum. The game went off without incident. Clarence Campbell was not in attendance.
All right. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. That was the story of the Richard Riots. Strange little piece of sports history there, and I hope you enjoyed it. So as mentioned before, this is the new format for the Tuesday podcast. And, uh, of course, I welcome any feedback you have, and hopefully it's something that we'll, we'll keep getting better at and uh, that will continue to be entertaining. So if you like this, um, this is Apocalypse Sports Radio. You can find us on iTunes. You can leave a review. You can subscribe. You can also listen on Stitcher, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, and places like that. And uh, other than that, I don't think I have anything else today, so I will let you go and uh, encourage you to, to check out some of the writing at ApocalypseSports.net. And if you uh, would like to support that writing in these podcasts, you can do so at patreon.com slash apocalypse sports. Thanks and have a wonderful day. Goodbye.